I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Good evening. I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation. One of the conversations that Long Now has had with itself all along and thinking long-term is we're constantly wondering, is there something we could do that's better than a university? And in some ways, this series of talks is an outgrowth of that conversation. And will universities persist? They've been around for a thousand years, and that's not bad. But you look back, the first university in the West really was the Library of Alexandria, which wasn't called a library. It was called a museum. Museum, museum comes from that. It was a place where thinkers accumulated, and indeed all the books of the time accumulated, and brightest people interacted with each other. And as you look around, what are current amazing alternatives to university, the Smithsonian Institution stands out. As it does all the things the university does, does education, does science, does a major uh, interaction of conversation. And unlike universities, it's not in one place, it's all over hell and gone. And it's been around damn near as long as America. And so it has already been helping Americans and everybody who visits these places, seven million a year, something like that, to think long-term. And the new head of the Smithsonian Secretary, as he's called, Wayne Clough, <coughs> is extending that, and he's extending it tonight. Before we let him do that, uh, we want to present him with a thing. And uh, Laura Welcher is here to do that. You know, I, I give talks, and they come up, and they give you a Pendleton blanket, or uh, which is the best one I ever got. They give you a weird little memento, which you try to lose on the way to the airport. We hope this is better than that. So um, my name is Laura Welcher, and I direct the Rosetta Project at the Long Now Foundation. And uh, when the Long Now Foundation was first getting started and uh, Stuart wrote the book, The Clock of the Long Now, he proposed that along with the clock, we, we should also have a library, um, a 10,000-year library. And um, so alongside the clock, we've had a couple of projects that have been our thinking about what this library would be. Um, it may eventually be a physical space, but to now it's mostly been a mental space. And uh, one, of that, one of those projects is Long Bets, so uh, a place where you can, it's kind of a, an accountability record over time. And uh, the other project that we have is Rosetta, and that's a collection of information about the world's languages, and that content turns out to be a pretty good kind of content for the long view, because languages are a product of millennia of human cultural development. So tonight, on the occasion of Dr. Clough's talk to us about Smithsonian Forever, we would like to present him with our, a, new version of the Rosetta, a new version of the Rosetta Disc, um, which you can see here and you can see up on our screen. Yes, sir. <laughs> and um, so this, Dr. Clough, is an archive of the world's languages. It has on it microscopically etched, which you'll have to read with a microscope, 
um, documents on over 1,500 human languages, and there's 13,000 pages on that disk. So from our 10,000-year archive to your forever archive, <laughs> on behalf of the Long Now Foundation. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Stuart uh, and Laura. Thank you very much for that wonderful and thoughtful presentation to the Smithsonian. Of course, they won't let me have it. I don't get to touch anything at the Smithsonian, as my archivists always tell me, don't touch that. So you have to be very careful. Um, but it will become part of the Smithsonian archives, and that's an important part of it. And at some point in my remarks, I will speak to this matter of languages, which is really part of the uh, uh, protection, if you will, of our culture. And the Smithsonian is involved in all of these things. Well, I've had the wonderful experience to be uh, involved in, with institutions here in the Bay Area in my past, because I went to Berkeley for my doctorate uh, back in the wild and woolly 60s. Uh, and <laughs> all right. Uh, and then uh, after a small stint back at Duke University, I taught at Stanford for about a decade. Uh, and uh, it's, it was a wonderful time here in the Bay Area and have many friends here. Uh, the Smithsonian has many friends who help support us in our mission as well, and we're very grateful to all of them. So if you live as long as I have, and you've been as many places as I have, sometimes things circle around on themselves. And it turned out at the Smithsonian, one of the exciting things I got to do was to accept a gift uh, from Christo and Jean-Claude of the remnants of the Running Fence project. And one of the young archivist at the Smithsonian American Art Museum asked me, are you old enough to have been there when the Running Fence Project was there? And of course I had to say, yes, I was old enough to have been there. In fact, I was there before it was there. Uh, but it was a wonderful experience to meet uh, Christo and Jean-Claude, and I had a great, obvious, another experience to see their Gates Project in, in New York City, uh, which are marvelous things. So these are, are great experiences you get to have as Secretary of the Smithsonian and in this process of choosing objects and bringing them into the Smithsonian. And it really relates to the topic we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, the Smithsonian, like any cultural and or educational institution today, is facing budget challenges and difficult choices that we have to make because none of us are immune from these things. At the same time, we have remarkable opportunities that I will describe to you tonight. And so we have to make choices. So in the process of getting our arms around where we are going as an institution, we've been doing some heavy-duty thinking, strategic planning, if you will. Uh, and we've been able to uh, fortunately uh, have the services uh, of Global Business Networks and Peter Schwartz, uh, who's worked with us on scenario-based planning and is a member of the Long Now Foundation. And Peter arranged for me to meet with the Long Now board and have one of our scenario-based discussions about the future. And we began thinking about time and what time really meant and at the Smithsonian how that plays out. And really that's where this talk comes from, I think. And it set me to thinking about time and the Smithsonian and I want to share uh, some of those thoughts with you because it's a very important issue for us. So we are at that point where we have to make important decisions. One of the other groups that Peter arranged for me to meet with was a group of young millennials here in California. Uh, these are people who are, shall we say, younger than me. Uh, 
probably 20, 22, 23, you know, born in about 1989, 1990. Uh, and their memory of things is quite different than my memory of things. And so uh, it was interesting in that discussion, very lively discussion. And at one point, I asked the group, what would you like the Smithsonian to do for you? And I explained to them, you own the Smithsonian. It's publicly owned. You own it. And you own our 137 million objects that are in our collection. But you've probably never seen them. And one young woman looked at me and she said, surprise me. Surprise me. So she wanted to be surprised. And you could say, in, on one sense, if you wanted to be a little cynical, well, this is just that new generation, young generation, always looking for something new and wanting to be surprised. But I think it was a deeper sentiment that she had. Because we know, really, when you look at creativity, creativity and surprise are two sides of the same coin. There's no such thing as creativity without surprise. Uh, one of the interesting things, if you Google surprise and creativity, what it takes you to is a page on robotics. It turns out, as astute as robots can be about mechanical tasks, they cannot be surprised yet. There are people who are working on that, but surprise is an important part of what humans do. And so what I want to talk about tonight is surprise in the sense of the Smithsonian. So in the time frame of what we might say is now, I'm hoping that we will also be able to talk about uh, what we would call the long now and what the Long Now Foundation brings to us, and what the Smithsonian does in the same sense. Uh, when I speak to you tonight, I'm really going to divide this up into three parts. The first part could be now, because I want to explain a little bit about what the Smithsonian does. I found, even myself, when I went there, I didn't understand the Smithsonian, and I think that's important. The second part could be called the Long Now of the Past, and because the Smithsonian deals a lot with history and historical objects, and objects actually that go back fairly far into time, and that reflects on what we will know about the future when we study history, of course. And the third element of the talk will be the long now of the future, because it really is all about the future. Learning about the past is actually all about the future. Tell you a little bit about the Smithsonian, and let me get this going here. Uh, so those are the three things I just mentioned. The Smithsonian owes its existence to a British scientist, a chemist, named James Smithson, who never set foot in this country, but bequeathed his estate to the United States in a very broad mandate saying uh, for the establishment of an institution called the Smithsonian Institution that would increase and diffuse knowledge. And it was physically created by an act of Congress in 1846. It took a while, 10 years after the bequest, took Congress 10 years to figure out what they would do with the money. But it was, in fact, to create the Smithsonian Institution. So 163 years later, we're still fo focused on these dual missions of research and education. And I think our education mission is probably more obvious of the two to most people. Most people, in fact, see us through the lenses of our 19 museums. We're the largest museum complex in the world. And we also operate the National Zoo, and that has a historical basis in it. And, in fact, some 27 million visits are made to the Smithsonian. We will get 7 million visits at any one of our museums. Uh, that's a huge number of people coming to see us every day of the year but one Christmas. We're open all the time. Many others subscribe to Smithsonian's magazine, and I'd encourage you to do that because it helps us with the advertising. Uh, and we need a little money. But it helps you understand a little bit more about the Smithsonian. We have multiple research centers. We have 20 libraries, and we work in 88 different countries. And now with digital access, we have an even greater reach. 
Teachers and students across the United States and around the world now are beginning to know us because of something called the Encyclopedia of Life, which is a project from our Museum of Natural History, which is going to develop a web page for every species that we know that exists on Earth. And that's a remarkable device. And our interactive seminars have just begun. We just did one about Lincoln. We simply didn't advertise it because we wanted to see if it worked. 4,200 people joined in because they could see all of our exhibits on Lincoln and participate and interact with the curators. It attracted people from all 50 states. And then the surprise, because we never thought we would see it, 70 countries participated. We didn't advertise at all. And yet people from 70 countries are interested in Abraham Lincoln, and we thought that was a good thing. We'll do another one. The next one is in September, uh, primarily directed at the K-12 environment. It will be on global warming, which the Smithsonian has a great deal to say about. We're also working in social media uh, activities. For example, you can play online games with the Smithsonian American Art Museum called Ghost of a Chance, which is a, a basically a scavenger game that gets kids interest, young people interested in art. And so we are active now in the digital world, and you'll see more of that to come. So all of these avenues and of education and communication point to our vast collection of things and material objects that we've amassed since we began collecting in 1846. Now, in a very real sense, the Smithsonian is a curator to the world because we collect objects all over the world, not just from our country. We even collect objects in outer space, and I'll talk about that a little bit later. The question is, what is worth preserving when you're collecting? What is worth preserving? It's a challenging task. Out of all of the material objects that make up, of our, wor make up our world, out of all of the information that is flashing by us today in bits and bytes, how do we decide what to grasp and keep? What's important for the future? Some things are unique and spectacular. A spacesuit from John Glenn is spectacular. We would preserve that. But many things in our collections may have been considered rather ordinary in their day, but they've taken on significance through time. So that decision is an important one. As an example, our specimens of animals. We, for example, have 650,000 deceased birds in our collection. They're important. They were important to type species in the past to understand something about evolution of species. But today we can extract DNA from these species and learn even more about what it means what the different species uh, manifest themselves as, and so forth. We are collecting now a genetic database as part of the barcode of life that will help establish actually how many species there are on planet Earth. And we can serve unexpected needs. For example, when the U.S. Airlines plane went down over the Hudson River, as you may remember it, as they say, ingested birds into the engines and had to make an emergency landing, they came to the Smithsonian with the remains of the birds because we identify things like that. And so up to 4,500 bird strikes per year come to the Smithsonian because we have the bird collections. We can actually identify the birds. It turns out these were, as you've probably read, Canada geese. Canada geese. Uh, there were two females, we determined, and one male. And, in fact, they were not the hang-around New York City type of Canada geese. They were migratory. Why is that important? If they're hanging around the airport, you can get rid of them. If they're migrating, they're migrating, folks. And it makes you a little nervous when you're taking off and landing, but that's the way life is. So that's a useful use of our collection. But at a deeper level, the essence we're searching for in everything we collect 
and in all of the research we do, is meaning. Meaning. We want to capture what it means to be human and to gather a collective statement of how our society understands and remembers itself. And then we want to put that meaning into a larger context of the unfolding of our species and indeed the universe. So we care much more than just about the objects or the facts. Much of our search is for meaning based on connections and relationships. Relationships. These relationships between humans and our tangible objects in the immediate world of everyday life over time constitute our identity and make our culture what it is. And then there are relationships between human beings and the larger context of the planet and the universe. Our search for meaning brings history, art, the sciences into relationship with each other. And the Smithsonian is unusual in that regard, that it spans all of these different areas. Most museums, most complexes, most research complexes are focused, and we are focused but on these broad areas. The relationships between human beings, us, and the objects that comprise our world are invariably sensory. It's what we see, what we hear, what we taste, and indeed perhaps what we hear. The Smithsonian is getting interested in that side of the equation, what we hear, because it's part of the understanding of the object itself. For example, uh, if we were to think about making pottery and the object of collecting pottery and the art that is in pottery, what do we miss? We miss the process of the making of the pottery. Think of a potter turning a vessel on a wheel. That's all part of the process, the creative process. Suppose we could record that and that would enhance our understanding of how that object came into being. or Take Mickey Hart, the drummer for the Grateful Dead. Mickey Hart has a new interest these days, not just in in music, but particularly what the cosmos might be saying to us in the form of music. Well, it turns out there's a lot of music in the universe. We have many, we have almost one-sixth of our employees at the Smithsonian are engaged in the business of astronomy or astrophysics, most of them in Cambridge, Massachusetts at the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory. We work with Harvard. And as our astronomers will tell me, we never thought about listening. We thought about looking and seeing. Well, Mickey came and said, what about listening? Well, it turns out there's a lot to listen to. You can actually still hear the remnants of the Big Bang from 14 billion years ago. The sun sends us sensory messages every day. And so there's a lot out there to make music from. And Mickey, working with our astronomers and our astrophysicists, are going to make music. That'll be fun. That's one of the things that makes it fun about being at the Smithsonian. These things can happen there. Well, I was fortunate to be born in this country in a small town of Douglas, Georgia, in the deep south, rural town. And along the way, I went one too far, I think. Uh, along the way, I gained an appreciation for Southern writers, notably William Faulkner, and I read everything he wrote. And I learned something about the time frame for the long now from William Faulkner as I thought back to the words of this young man, Clay Chick Mallison in Faulkner's novel, Intruder in the Dust. He said, tomorrow began 10,000 years ago, the time frame of the clock. To Faulkner, we could add the words of Winston Churchill, who said, the farther backward you can look, the farther forward you can see. We believe that at the Smithsonian. Our long-term thinking is based on the premise that the history of the universe and planet Earth 
and its inhabitants is a relevant guide to the future. So, at the Smithsonian, we see ourselves as time travelers. We spend a considerable effort looking back into time, back even further than 10,000 years, for clues that will help us understand and perhaps anticipate what the future will bring. And tonight, I'd like to invite you to join me as we travel back into the very long now of the Smithsonian timeline as defined by a few examples of how we try to understand the past. So as we begin with our little experiment in time at, uh, in this presentation, our scope begins quite close at hand with ourselves as Americans, members of a country called the United States. And then we're going to broaden it out as members of the universe. So let's think a little bit about 300 years of U.S. history. 300 years. That's all we've been around. It represents our efforts to try to capture, when we talk about this time period, to capturing the identity of the American experience, the experience in this country through our history and culture. Artifacts are an important way to connect people with their heritage and their identity. They help successive generations to relive the experiences of their forebears. And sometimes they reveal surprises like Lincoln's gold pocket watch. It had been in, Lincoln, in, in the Smithsonian's collections for many years. As you know, this was probably the only really expensive thing Lincoln ever owned. He bought it before he came to Washington, and he treasured it. And he was getting it uh, tuned up by a jeweler in 1861 when the news of the Union attack on Fort Sumter arrived in Washington, D.C. The story uh, was claimed then that the jeweler inscribed a secret message in the watch that Lincoln never saw. And so just a few months ago, we reopened the watch. And sure enough, there was the message that this gentleman had written supporting the abolition of slavery, part of our history. Well, few things are more American than something we call the Star-Spangled Banner, the actual flag that flew over Fort McHenry and inspired Fort Francis Scott Key to write his poem that became our national anthem, was put on display at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History when it opened. The Smithsonian came into possession of it in 1907. That flag, as you know, is almost 200 years old, and we recently completed a 10-year project to conserve it in a very special way. I would urge you to go back and see it. It's thrilling. The point was not really to restore this object to its original condition, which would actually have obliterated its history but to clean it and stabilize this very fragile fabric. When you see it, it's stunning. And at the same time, preserving the marks of two centuries and the many hands that cared for it. <clears throat> One of the most appealing exhibits about this country are those at our Air and Space Museum, very popular, the spacesuits, to which visitors relate to on a very personal level to see the size of the spacesuit and imagine yourself in them. They look at the spacesuit, for example, John Glenn wore as the very first American to enter space in 1962 and imagine what it was like for themselves to put it on and sit on top of that big rocket. These special garments, of course, were designed to protect our space, our astronauts from harsh conditions in outer space. But surprisingly, they deteriorate very quickly back on Earth. And so it's up to the Smithsonian to preserve these objects as long as we can, indeed forever if we can. Care and conservation and technically dealing with the issues associated with it is very important to the Smithsonian. Art, of course, captures another aspect of our personality 
as it conveys the perspectives of our ideas and our emotional tenor. And those usually reflect a time in which the artwork was done. The Smithsonian American Art Museum, for example, is presently featuring an exhibit called 1934, A New Deal for Artists. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, in the middle of the Depression, that we will have art, and he funded artists to paint artwork. This artwork reminds us of a nation which had traditional, traditional values of hard work, community, and optimism. And this particular painting is of the California Golden Hills. Today it gives Americans who were once again in rough economic times an opportunity to reconnect with our forebearers who went through similar or maybe worse experiences and survived and in fact remain optimistic. And if you can't make it to our museum to see these objects, we have all of them, not just the 30 or 40 in the exhibition. We have the whole collection up on Flickr Commons and you can see them all. Now, let's uh, say that we've now done our 300 year time back. Let's take another Smithsonian timeline back 30,000 years ago. And our horizons broadened to the first humans who arrived in America or in this hemisphere. The Smithsonian has been studying the native peoples of North, Central, and South America for many years and has one of the most extensive collections of artifacts and art from this period in the world. The research in the collection, which is the focus particularly of the new Museum of the American Indian, touches on about 12,000 different cultures that extend back more than 12,000 years. Now, some people argue it goes even further back than that. But that's another way of looking at a timeline. Of course, art is an outgrowth of the concept of using symbols, which humans developed, we believe, sometime perhaps as much as 300,000 years ago. These are examples of symbols, the dawn of a new era and the relationship of humans and the world around them. It vested a new meaning into objects that previously were only utilitarian, and it enabled the development of languages. The Smithsonian's early efforts at cultural preservation includes the preservation of languages because language is embodiment of our culture. Language is the way we've historically preserved the record of our experiences and uh, of shared values. Recovering voices is a long-term effort by the Smithsonian to capture the look, sound, and structure of endangered languages before they disappear. And we do it with the Rosetta Stone Foundation. One of our prized possessions is a set of cards made by Thomas Jefferson, who as Secretary of State wrote down short phrases of Indian languages and translated them into English. We have the set of cards. It's an amazing thing to see them and hold them in your hand. So we are glad to share with the Rosetta, the Long Now Foundation Rosetta Disc Project, and particularly honored to receive the presentation tonight in an important effort to preserve that part of our culture. Now we shift gears again in the Smithsonian timeline one that takes us back about five million years, when the very earliest hominoids began to walk around in Africa upright on two feet. The Smithsonian began studying Paleolithic material in 1869 and has amassed a sizable body of research and artifact documenting the earliest human ancestors. And next year we'll open an exciting new exhibit on the origins of man, which incidentally will be pitched around the notion of climate change because human development was very much affected by epochs of climate change. Skulls, of course, have always been an important way for scientists to understand the development of human beings. 
But we also pay a lot of attention to hands and feet, which changed significantly as our ancestors moved out of the trees to live on the ground. Climbing trees and running away from a dangerous predator are two different things. You need different appendages to do that. The big toe is no longer needed to function like a thumb if you're trying to run away from the bad guys and get away from them. And it's a different kind of thing. And your hand, it turns out, is different as a result of our evolution. So this is important for us then, and that's actually helped understand the difference when the new hobbit was found, to understand it was a different species than Homo sapiens. One more jump in the Smithsonian timeline, 55 million years ago, when the Eocene epoch was just beginning. And this is the moment when our own earliest primate relatives first showed up on Earth, as well as the earliest ancestors of horses, sheep, and pigs. And that happens to be my hand. Uh, a picture was taken in Wyoming, and the larger jawbone there is that of an early horse, I'm told. Uh, the interesting thing about this horse was it was about the size of a cat. And it had something to do with climate change in this period, which I'll talk about just a little bit later on. But that was the time when primates had a chance to become prominent on Earth. We're interested in these early developments of primates. One of those we're interested in is Przewalski's horse, the last remaining truly wild horse in the world. It comes from Mongolia primarily. The wild horses on the American uh, and Australian plains and islands like Chincoteague and Cumberland are from the same genetic line as domestic horses. In contrast, Brzezowski's horse has 66 genes, two more than domestic horses. All of the Brzezowski horses alive in the world today are descended from 14 individuals who were snatched from the brink of total extinction. As a result, their continued survival continues to be threatened by lack of genetic diversity. And the National Zoo, which specializes in production of habitat and in breeding endangered species, is a leader in reintroducing Przewalski's horses back into the wild. Now, one more time to understand this 55 million year ago time period I referred to, the larger context of the emergence of the earliest mammals. We're going to go to the Bighorn Basin, located in the Wyoming Badlands, a place where towns have names like Buffalo, and Grey Bull, and as I learned, the local brew that they like to uh, market and is very tasty called Moose Drool. Very good beer. The Bighorn Basin is a unique place because it was formed as the Rocky Mountains were simultaneously rising up but being eroded away. The rivers eroding the Rockies laid down thick layers of mud in the Bighorn Basin, which subsequently themselves were eroded into badlands so that the rocks and fossils of millions of years ago are quite close to the surface. Now I went to Worland, Wyoming in the Bighorn Basin just a few months ago to visit with our Smithsonian researchers and some of their colleagues where they've been ex ex trying to excavate fossils for about 30 years. Our folks are paleobotanists, paleobiologists, and, um, and, and they're looking not for dinosaur bones but for plant fossils, very important. And their discoveries are making an important contribution to our understanding of global warming, we believe. Smithsonian researchers in polar regions, along with others, study global warming by boring deep into glacial ice. Many of you are familiar with that, and removing a core and looking at one that was laid down over a course of many thousands of years. A really good ice core will take you back 800,000 years, 800,000 years. 
However, the past million years, which encompasses that period, was actually a time of cooling of our planet's and if you only look at that time frame and you look at what's happening within that time frame, you're only looking at one data set about global warming. But if you look at leaf fossils to look back 55 million years ago, you'll see a different perspective. The Earth at this time, 55 million years ago, was in a 30 million year warm period, warmer than it's been at any time since then. And the Paleocene epoch, as it gave way to the Eocene, Things heated up even more for various reasons, probably having to do with a period of high volcanic eruption. The Earth entered a period of rapid global warming in almost 10,000 years called the Paleocene-Eocene Thermal Maximum, which lasted over total about 200,000 years. And during that time, the average surface temperature of the Earth rose by 4 to 8 degrees Celsius, and carbon dioxide in the atmosphere reached levels triple that of today. Remember, mammals were small. It was very hot and hard for them to survive. Cold-blooded animals, like snakes, got bigger. And so Smithsonian folks have recently discovered snakes as big as 45 feet and weighing 2,500 pounds. So they do well. Some forms of life do very well when it gets hot. Well, Palm leaf fossils, I'd like to comment. The type, size, and features of these fossilized leaves provide a rough thermometer, if you will, to the temperatures, a rough rain gauge, and so forth. What a bighorn uh, basin plant fossil indicates is that 55 million years ago, during the Paleocene-Eocene maximum therm, is that the equatorial tropics moved north, covering all of the United States. And this particular fossil is something that I'm actually looking at. And it's amazing to open up a rock and see a fossil that's been there for and not been seen for 55 million years ago. The change was so rapid that in terms of a geological clock, it was like going to bed in my home state of Georgia and waking up the next morning in southern Mexico. As global warming's become an increasing concern for our long-term future, the Smithsonian's collection of leaf fossils in the Paleo-Eocene Thermal Maximum are an important research for us, resource for us to understand the future. We're going to take a further step back. 55 million years is not enough. And we're going to leave the Earth for outer space to study the development of our solar system, our galaxy, and the universe itself. The Smithsonian's first secretary was a physicist who started the institution on a course that has made the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory the largest and most diverse astrophysical institution in the world. We operate telescopes in Hawaii, Arizona, and partners in an activity in Chile. We also operate space-based telescopes like the one shown here. Telescopes are, in fact, uh, uh, the astronomers and astrophysicists would tell us, time machines. Of course, in the course of a year, light travels 5.9 trillion miles. 5.9 trillion miles. That's a light year, but it's also a measure of time. For example, in this picture from the Smithsonian's telescope in Arizona the of the Whirlpool Galaxy is 20 million light years from Earth. So the collision we see here reflects how things looked 20 million years ago. As we explore the history of the universe, one of the more intriguing questions is, are there other planets out there similar to the Earth that might have living organisms on it? And this question is the focus of the Kepler satellite, which is a project where the Smithsonian is an important component of it. It was launched in March. For the next four years, Kepler will scan the Milky Way 
to detect and categorize planets that are in what we would call the habitable zone. That means they meet the requirements for life. Kepler will continuously monitor 100,000 stars that are similar to the sun, watching for orbiting planets across their face. And by the way, the Kepler project is listening as well as looking because other stars like our sun might just be broadcasting messages to us acoustically. Kepler indeed has already identified a number of interesting planets like Earth. So stay tuned. We'll move a little further back in the timeline for the Smithsonian and turn once more to the Smithsonian collections of meteorites, the Allende meteorite. This meteorite, which was discovered by Smithsonian scientists in northern Mexico in 1969, is the oldest known natural specimen in the world, 4.5 billion years old. It contains some of the very first matter to condense out of the solar nebula when our solar system formed, and it also contains tiny diamonds from the supernova explosions of other solar systems as well as amino acids that are not part of our natural worth world here on Earth. The wealth of significant information it brought us has caused some to call this meteorite the Rosetta Stone of planetary science. So we now end our journey about the Smithsonian timeline back on, uh, on, a, low, on a high mountaintop in Chile, 8,000 feet above sea level in a climate that is so dry, very little grows there. That is no water vapor, no cloud. Great place for observatories. The air is crisp and clear, devoid of moisture and ambient light. When I was there and walked out at night, it was stunning to see a sky I had never seen before because you saw so much. We are partners at the Las Campanas Observatory with the Carnegie Institution and others, and we are involved presently with the so-called Magellan Telescopes. It's the only place in the world, and I don't know if you can actually see this closely, where you have a sign that says, Parking Reserved for Astronomers. Now, over the course of the next decade, something called the Giant Magellan Telescope will be built at Las Campanas by an international consortium of which we are a member. This is a powerful new telescope that will allow us to see stars and universes ten times more clearly than the space-based Hubble. Not only will we gain a clearer picture of what happened in space millions of years ago, but as we look further out in the universe, we'll be looking further, further back. We may be able to see events associated with the Big Bang, 14 billion years ago. That's exciting. It's human, of course, nature, it's human nature for us to often focus on our differences, how different we are than others. People do that on an individual day, level in their daily lives. And we began the Smithsonian timeline with a celebration and preservation of unique cultures and languages. But as we journey back further in time, those differences fade away. And we're reminded that in the infinite scheme of the planet and the universe, such differences are superficial. We are all from Africa. We are all made up of stardust that traces time back to the formation of our solar system and beyond. And now that we've sort of taken our quick journey, we've gone through the Smithsonian timeline back to the origin of the universe, what about the long now of the future? Of course, our extensive collections come from the past to the present, but as we look forward, the Smithsonian's breadth of interest and expertise provide a unique opportunity for collaborative long-term thinking about across disciplines and indeed around the world. 
I want to give you a couple of quick examples about ecosystems. We begin in Kenya, the same country where Smithsonian anthropologists are researching the emergence of the world's first human being. However, this time we go to Impala, to a wildlife research center where in partnership with others, we've helped establish a scientific preserve of 48,000 acres in Kenya, short, very near Mount Kenya. Our purpose here is to help find ways to sustain a complex in, uh, ecosystem that includes human beings as well as a diverse and exotic population of magnificent animals. My recent visit to the Impala Wildlife Preserve began with elephants and ended with ants. That's important. Because the research institution, the research center, correctly views all of this as an ecosystem and all of the large and the tiny species work together. The ants live in bulbous hollow knots at the joints of acacia trees, which you can see up here. And they protect the acacia tree, and I can vouch for that. If you tap an acacia tree, out come the ants. Don't stand too close because they will defend their territory, and they protect the acacia tree against parasites. But they keep the acacias healthy. That keeps the grasses healthy, and it keeps the elephants healthy. It's all connected. Food is important here, of course, because the Impala Reserve is surrounded by native pe peoples, the Maasai uh, tribes, for example, and the Subaru tribe. Their livestock compete with the wildlife for food, resulting in overgrazing. Any plan to conserve the wildlife must consider the people. That's the challenge. If all parts of the ecosystem, humans as well as wildlife, can adapt to each other, the chances of survival will be higher. Very important. Ecosystem deteriorating rapidly. Kenya went from 9 million people to 39 million people in a very short period of time, so the competition for habitat is substantial. Take you to the forest in Panama, the rainforest, where the Smithsonian has been studying tropical forest systems there for upwards of 100 years. Not long by long now standards, but longer than anybody else. We have the longest running, continuously observed plot of land in the Barrow, Colorado Island, in the middle of the Panama Canal, of any place in the world. Our studies have made it clear that tropical ecosystems are incredibly dynamic and subject to climate change, small changes in the climate. So we created the Smithsonian Global Earth Observatories, a network of forest research plots across the world, observing consistently the same way what's happening to the nation, to the world's rainforest, and comparing those data. The goal is to keep on our hand on the pulse of the planet by monitoring the long-term growth and survival of 65,000 species of trees in the ecosystems that exist around them. Very important to us for things like carbon sequestration and containing the effects of global warming. Philosophers and historians, of course, have argued for millennia about whether or not history actually repeats itself, but Mark Twain probably got it right when he said history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. So at the Smithsonian, we're looking for those deep underlying rhythms that will help us prepare for the long now of the future. For example, when we look back through the history of the planet and the major global challenges facing us today, climate change is a common thread and a driving force. And that will also be true in our long-term future. So it's a good idea to learn as much as we can about the un underlying long-term rhythms of global warming and climate change. Predicting the future of global warming, unfortunately, is still an inexact science. 
and the patterns and impacts of climate change are not well understood. Global warming and climate change affects the actions and reactions of everything, all living things. The reality is much more complex than even the most sophisticated computer model to date. As our Smithsonian paleobiologist Scott Wing, who's working in Wyoming on the sites that I described earlier, says, we still have a lot to learn. And a significant portion of what we would call the operator's manual is carved in stone, in the fossil of places like the Bighorn Basin, where we have to learn from nature in the future. The evidence from 55 million years ago contained in plant fossils is giving us a better understanding of global warming and it will help refine the models of those who are developing them. We're also learning what we may be, uh, might be approaching that we've been modeling with the wrong assumptions. We've traditionally assumed that the goal was optimality in our model, figuring out how to sustain the best possible configuration for the longest possible time. But the Paleocene-Eocene thermal maximum implies, and others, that we should be thinking about different assumptions. Essentially, uh, what we need to think about that this 10,000 years which the carbon boiled into the atmosphere rapidly, causing dramatic global warming, actually at a slower pace than we're causing right now though, because what followed was a much longer stretch of time when which species, namely mammals, settled down and learned to live in a new environment. Not all did, but some did. The key to survival was not optimality, but adaptability. The challenge, as our work has shown in Impala and others, is to make that consistent with our models. So, the challenge of adaptability brings us full circle back to the Smithsonian's collections and the task of discerning when to hold fast and when to let go. Several months after 9-11, a group of Tibetan Buddhist monks came to the Smithsonian to make a sand mandala for the healing of American people. Days after painstakingly precise labor yielded an intricate and beautiful sand painting that was seven feet across, one of the largest ever made, the Smithsonian, as curator of the world, and our curators said, we will preserve it. But after it had been on display about two weeks, the monks went through the ritual of dismantling the mandala with brushes. They gathered up the sand in a glass jar and they dumped it in the Potomac River. <laughs> For them, the return of the sand to the natural environment from which it came was a reminder of the Buddhist belief that material life is transitory. For the Smithsonian, it illustrated once again the eternal tension between the ephemeral and the permanent. It's not always easy to discern which objects should be cast aside and which ones we should hold on to for the future. Those decisions are difficult, and we have, fortunately, wonderful curators and scientists to help make those decisions. We collect with a long-term purpose. The title of this talk, The Smithsonian Forever, comes from a quotation by David Shait, who was a beloved curator at the Smithsonian Museum of American History, and he passed away recently. David collected unusual objects, eclectic objects. Some of them were whimsical and speak to our culture. Bells, tools, cue sticks, crayons, Playboy bunny costumes, lunch boxes, surfboards, and much more. He collected objects from the ground zero immediately after 9-11 and New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. He once explained his work with these words that you see here, and I think he spoke for everyone at the Smithsonian. As David noticed, 
noted, humans, people are optimists. They believe in the future. They want things that have meaning for them, and they want those things to live on beyond their lifetime. It's a recognition that the art and artifacts in the Smithsonian's collection play an important role in helping transfer identity, meaning, and understanding from one generation to the next to the next. We also think of all the Smithsonian's work as taking place in the context of forever. Not only because we're engaged in the enormously important effort to learn more about our history stretching back through time, even to the Big Bang, but also because we believe that understanding that history will be a useful tool in understanding our future into the long now and beyond. Thank you very much for joining me this evening. Uh, Wayne, did you see this movie, uh, Julia and Julie? Yeah, no, no, my wife's talking me into that. I haven't been there yet. We, we, have the, we have our kitchen. You know the last scene, and it takes place in the Smithsonian, I guess, <laughs> recreation of Julia Child's kitchen. Right. And what is interesting that they did in the movie is, you know, the, the Julie character, the young character, goes and visits and photographs herself in front of this stuff at the museum. <laughs> and then the character, Meryl Streep, playing Julia Child, comes into that kitchen and plays out her final scene in the movie. And in that scene, she's been very tall. She's six foot two as a person. Right. Meryl Streep's not that tall. In that scene, you see the high heels that she's been wearing through the whole movie that <laughs> elevated her up to be Julia Child. So there's so many layers of illusion and present and past intersecting in that one scene. It's remarkable. The Smithsonian hadn't done that. We wouldn't have had that opportunity to go in and out. Do you have any idea how... Why Julia Child's Kitchen? How does stuff like that come into the museum? <laughs> well, we do have a popular culture section, and the fact is things that we would consider popular culture today are maybe not totally serious, may become very serious in the future. And so our folks do collect with an intent to collect popular culture. Some of that, for example, will be sports, uh, sports memorabilia, very important to certain segments of our population. And it says something about our culture as to what we are and what we're interested in at a particular time. And cooking is a good thing to be interested in, I suspect. In fact, it goes back a long time. Well, here's a related question from Adrian Cotter. Uh, do you have examples of things that the Smithsonian has not collected? Do you worry about missing things through some bias of your curators? Mm -hmm. That's a very good question. And it's something we've been thinking about as we've been doing this strategic planning process because just to take an example, we know that this country is a very diverse place. Uh, peoples come from many different uh, as, uh, uh, countries, many different parts of the world to be here. We know that by 2030 or so, there will be no majority in this country. And the Smithsonian is America's museum. It's supposed to represent all of America as well as obviously look at issues around the world. And so if our collections tend to focus or skew to just one part of our country, we're doing a disservice to the other part of our country whose taxes are in fact paying for part of our operating expenses. And so we are thinking very hard about that, uh, that we do need our curators to think broadly about what they collect. And, uh, you know, I've, I've found, for example, I, I tend to be eclectic about the way I think about collections sometimes. And I asked our curators recently, a group, that I'm very interested in innovation. What does the Smithsonian have to say about the creative nature of America? We, we tend to be an innovative country. And so 
we listed out a collection of things, Edison's light bulb, the, the uh, compass from Lewis and Clark's expedition, the salt vaccine, and suddenly you realize all of those things tended to be European-oriented types of developments. So where were the artifacts from the American Indian? Where were the artifacts from the Asian American? We don't have them. And so we really have to think about our collections and how we shape them if, if we want to do our job in the future. We don't want to reach a point 20 or 30 years from now and say we wish we, wish we had done that. We do have Asian American and Latin American interest groups. We do have a museum of the American Indian, and we are going to have a museum of African American history and culture shortly. But really, we have to reflect the whole panoply of, of the American experience. A couple of questions on um, basically digital and preservation and permanent and forever. Jamie Taylor asks, uh, if we own the contents of the Museum of the Smithsonian, can you explain the license that the photos and records of holdings um, that the Institute are held under? Can I use them for my own purposes? Is there a stable web page for each item in the collection? <laughs> that would be kind of like the Encyclopedia of Life. The, right. you know, there'll be a page for each thing. One mm -hmm. point. Oh, what do you got? 137 billion mm -hmm. items. Uh, uh, we, we have 137 that? million million, uh, million yeah. okay, objects. Uh, a lot of those are insects and uh, things that you don't necessarily want to rush out and look at, uh, but we have lots of them. Uh, we are in the process of, of thinking through a whole strategy for digitizing our collection because even those things that the average, average person may want to see our entire collection of ticks, we have a lot of them, but teachers and scientists would and anybody interested in infectious diseases from ticks would. And so we're trying to, to think through how you digitize these collections in a way that makes it. One of our problems we have is, is most of our objects are not two-dimensional. Now, we have 13 million photographs, but most of our objects are three-dimensional. So how do you show three-dimensionality in an, an image? How many images do you need to see the full three-dimensional aspect of these things? And so three-dimensional scan. i got a question right here yeah, about it. And so we're working on all these are all live issues. If you want to share some information with us, we'd love to hear about it. But we are moving. We're working hard on it. We had a, a group in Clay, uh, Anderson, uh, Chris Anderson's here, and Clay Shirky was there and so forth. We talked about uh, what, how the Smithsonian should engage the web in terms of communicating with people. We know we're behind the times on that, but we're going to work hard on that. The images that we have, these are all publicly available images. You can use the images if they're on our website. A lot of our images, incidentally, are on Flickr, so those are obviously available to anybody. A uh, question from Rob Smith. You've been talking about the future of education and since the future of science. Which area of science deserves the most attention, do you think, but is receiving the least, and what can you guys do about that? <laughs> uh, well, I think the interesting question there is I think we're all concerned that we have generations of young people going through our K-12 through public school systems particularly, that don't have access to the kind of science education, perhaps that we had, and that they need in a new environment and a new competitive world that we're going to have to exist in uh, in the next uh, couple of decades. And the question is, how do we do that? Today, a lot of our science teachers, they're wonderful folks and they're doing everything they can, but they're required, for example, to prepare students for national tests. And it takes away from their ability to do things. In some cases, they don't have the resources they used to have to do lab exercises. We think the Smithsonian can help and we're working with different school entities, groups, for them to tell us what we can do that will help them. We're not going to offer science courses per se. That's already out there. What we will do is be able to fill in gaps 
through our collections and through our curators. Uh, while you won't see many of our collections, you won't meet many of our curators either. We'd like to change that. These are brilliant, wonderful people, and they would make great teachers, great people to help science teachers get their subjects across. But the Encyclopedia of Life is a good example where we will put all 1.8 million species on a web page. We think it's 1.8 million at this time. We suspect there are more, but we're losing some as we discover them. But what we also find is that we can create a website that's a trusted website. Science teachers will be willing to share their lesson plans with science teachers in other places. So we want to become a place where we can help trans transition knowledge from one place to the other uh, to our school teachers who are, are creative and want to work with each other. We can become a national resource in that regard. A uh, couple of questions, one from Lorraine Palmer, one from Susan. How is the Smithsonian dealing with the issue of countries and cultures wanting to repatriate objects in the collections? Okay. Well, obviously, this is something that's very much on everyone's mind. Starting today, or starting you know, more recently, you don't take objects from a country, period. You don't remove anything. You don't remove fossils. You don't remove works of art. Uh, you don't move any kind of artifact from a country anymore unless somebody gives you permission to do that. And there are reasons to do it. Many times we will make an agreement with a country that we'll take an object for 20 years and then we'll re return it at that point in time. Now there's a term called repatriation and I'm not the true expert on this, mind you. I'm a civil engineer by trade. But repatriation is something that's done within the United States. It regards remains from Native Americans uh, that we have possession of, that we repatriate. And we are steadily doing that as those requests are made. Outside of the United States, we return objects. We don't repatriate because that's not the same phrase when, when it's requested and when it makes sense to do that. But we have returned objects, including human remains as well as works of art to countries when they made the request. But this is an interesting era that we live in going forward. And, and this can have, in a way, a kind of a stifling effect on scholarship if you don't construct a new way for people to share information because of every country keeps everything it owns and doesn't share it in some way, then we all lose. So the question is, we have to create a new way of sharing information if, in fact, every country keeps the objects that they believe belong to them, and that's rightfully theirs. Here's an interesting one uh, from Robin Sloan. How do national museums generally fare in times of political upheaval? Iraq comes to mind. Uh, if or when the U.S. government goes through a dramatic transition, what does the Smithsonian do to hang in there? And, and, you know, is this something you plan for, uh, or is that going to be ad hoc? Well, uh, let me just address the Iraq situation where obviously treasures were lost or broken or destroyed, some of which have come back, but not completely. And we've had, we've loaned uh, experts to the Iraqi museums to help them in the work they're doing to secure those artifacts and to repair the artifacts. One of the challenges when you collect is you have to, if you're collecting forever, is you have to maintain objects. You have to have experts in different materials to maintain those objects. Spacesuits, special material. Fabric, special material. Metal, special material, and so forth. And so we have experts at the Smithsonian that other museums don't have. And we share that expertise to help others in terms of protecting the objects that they have. The Smithsonian itself is supported by the federal government. About 65% of our budget comes from federal appropriations. The rest we raise ourselves through philanthropy, uh, through stores, uh, through sales. So if you're at the Smithsonian, it didn't hurt to buy a little something. That helps our bottom line. 
Uh, we are trying, like many museums, to become what I say is more self-reliant. Now, that may mean we will charge for services in the future that we haven't charged for in the past simply because we don't have the resources to do the things that we have to do in the future. It's just, it's, you know, we have these collections, we have to maintain the collections, uh, we don't want to lose them. And so you have to find a way through these difficult times. We're very grateful for the support we've gotten from the federal government, uh, but it's still a challenge for us. So part of what libraries and museums often do when times are tight is you do a little deaccessioning. <laughs> and uh, sort of there's a question here from Adam, what's the process of items being removed from the Smithsonian collection? Okay, um, th there are these words that are used, uh, I, you know, it, we don't say getting rid of stuff, it, the accessioning is the right word. Uh, so we acquire, which is called accessioning, and then we deaccession. And so, uh, and, and there's a protocol that's a well-established protocol in the museum community about accessioning and about deaccessioning. We're very careful today about what we accession. We don't want to acquire things that are duplicates of things we already have, that would be silly. If a fellow, the other thing is that, as most people are learning, is you collaboration's a positive thing. So if the Field Museum in Chicago has an, a beautiful collection of a certain type of artifact, we don't need to have it. We can work with the Field to borrow from them. They can borrow from us. At any given time, five million of our artifacts at the Smithsonian, our collection, are on loan to other museums. And so museums are now getting smarter about it. Nobody's trying to do it all anymore. Uh, which is a, a, one of the smart ways of trying to avoid this. I, so I track this. Is it the case then that, that you basically have some knowledge, network knowledge, of what's in all the museums yes. in the world and they yes. have the same of you? Yes. Yep. That's pretty interesting. Yep. Can the, us look into that? Uh, I'm sure you can. It's all public information, so I'm sure you can. Uh, but the, and I don't know so how that would all be shared. of the world the, that sort of exists in some networked online-ish fashion? Or we're what? asking, guys, not the, the, that, that type of an expert. But what I do know is that museums themselves are working together in collaboration mm -hmm. to share information about what's in their collections. And as we digitize more of this information, we know more about what is in our collections and what in other people's collections because it doesn't make any sense for us to duplicate. Now, you know, in university world, yeah, because... What happens? You find that museum has something, maybe it's a better one or an older one or something like that. What do you do with the thing that you now have that's redundant? We can deaccession them, and we do. Things that Solid. are redundant, yeah. If I, I'll give, give, you, I'll give you my, my version of the story. One of the things I wanted to do when I came to the Smithsonian was understand what they call an installation speech. That's when you get inaugurated. Sounds like being installed like a mechanical appliance, but it was... An installation. So I read all the installation speeches of the 12, 11 secretaries before me. And what I noticed was that the number of artifacts, every one of them mentioned the number of artifacts. And it was going up, it was going up, it was going up until about 1996. And it started going down. And so I asked myself the question, why was that true? Uh, we started deaccessioning. And so we hit a peak of 144 million objects. We're now down to 137 million. Uh, we're deaccessioning now at the same time we're collecting. Now, admittedly, in interest of full disclosure, we acquired a huge stamp collection at one point in time. And so about five or six million of those things we deaccessioned were stamps. <laughs> so, well, we still have a great stamp collection. Just we don't duplicate anymore. But so we, we do, do you sell them to private collectors or other museums or what happens? You can. We can. And it depends on the way in which we acquired the object. 
sometimes a donor will say you can never sell it, and that's the way it is. Sometimes donors say, and under certain circumstances, you can sell. Uh, you know, in contemporary art, that's much more common than it is in other forms because contemporary art changes so much. And if it turns out that we, you know, we may have inherited a collection from a donor who wants to will it to us, and within that collection, you've got, you know, 16 pieces by the same artist. It may not be necessary to have 16 pieces. It's silly for us to take works of art into a collection and keep them in our, uh, you know, in storage. These things should be out, and it must, it's much better for us to give them out, loan them, and or make sure they're available to somebody else. So you looked at these previous installation speeches. Mm -hmm and then probably noticed how long those various secretaries lasted. What, what's the, <laughs> you know, is there any pattern there? Uh, what's the, the typical uh, the time in office for a secretary of the Smithsonian? Uh, it varies, obviously. So it's actually parallels university presidents' uh, lifespans fairly much, you know. About, right? Yeah. <laughs> university presidents used to hang around 20, 25 years, and then it got all the way down to about four years. It's been getting up. It's up to about seven now. Uh, Smithsonian's sort of like that. Uh, it, it, uh, it went, in the early days, the folks stayed around for about 20, 25 years. Hmm. And more recently, it's been somewhere between five and 10. How do you explain that? <laughs> well, if you look back, there are various and sundry reasons for it. Uh, the last uh, gentleman had a particular problem. No kidding. <laughs> yeah. Actually, you know, there's some giggling by people you know I'd love to hear how you describe the problems that the previous <laughs> secretary had. Well, they were, they were described fairly explicitly to me uh, in the sense that don't do these again. Which were? Say more. <laughs> you got, come on. Uh, well, you know, there was a, uh, the, the uh, uh, that was true. There, was, was, there so were what problems with What did with, he do with, that, that people wanted him gone for? Uh, I think uh, particularly some of the expenditures that were made and the way those expenditures were made were problems. Uh, and so the, the objective was, in, in my case, for example, uh, we, uh, we we didn't want a house that belonged to Smithsonian. We didn't want any of the, the accoutrements that came with that. So we have our townhouse. I walk to work. Uh, it's a much more logical way to do business than than the old way. Fair enough. Um, there are a lot uh, less perks than there used to be. <laughs> <laughs> Bob Kopak. I should say, incidentally, the perk is being secretary, because I get to meet these incredibly interesting people, and see these amazing collections and understand the stories behind all these collections. Beat your brains out raising money to support yeah, them all. Yeah, but I love to do it. Bob Kopak has an interesting long-term question. He says, forever is a very long time. <laughs> what is your real time horizon? Well, and we had that discussion with the Long Now Board because, uh, you know, what is the time that you can expect the Smithsonian to, how long will it exist? And then the question comes back with what, well, we're part of this country. How long will this country exist? And it's existed so far about 300 years. I think we would all like to think we might be here 300 years from now. 500 years? I like to think 1,000 years from now. I tell people at the Smithsonian who work there that what we want to make sure is that if we are still here 1,000 years from now, we want people to look back and say, those guys did a pretty good job. We don't want them to look back and say, what were those people thinking about uh, and, you know, back in that time? So. I think we have to presume that it's a long time, and we have to presume we'll be lucky that that will be true as our country and as this great institution will be. Some institutions last that long. Now, there was a couple questions buried in here of um, the National Park System says it serves uh, future generations. 
and indeed does it very well. Um, do you guys intersect with the national park system at all, or are you different worlds? Uh, not too much, but we intersect quite immediately in Washington because uh, we have museums along this thing called the National Mall. Uh, the National Mall doesn't belong to us. It belongs to the Park Service. So the Park Service operates the National Mall and all the activities that go on in the National Mall. The National Mall, you know, extends all the way down to the Tidal Basin and the Jefferson Memorial and so forth. Uh, and we own everything up to the curb, I'm told. And so we interact with them. We are working with them right now because there's a group trying to restore the health of the National Mall. And we want to work with them. It's our front yard. What do you mean the health? Hmm? The health of the National Mall? The, the mall itself. It, it's it, sick? It, it, it's not as, uh, it doesn't look as nice as it used to. It's pretty well beat up. It is a, it's like Smithsonian Museums in a way in that they're used heavily. That's a good thing. Mm -hmm. The American people use them all. People use it for football games and rugby games and softball games as well as formal events and inaugurations. Uh, some 740,000 people walked through our museum right. uh, at the time of the inauguration. And so it is heavily used. It, for, not to bore you with it, but it used to be, it, it, that used to be a river called the Tiber River. And it's a filled in area of uh, a lot of sediment that really is not the world's best sediment for growing grass. The grass is a very old kind of grass. We need to replant it. So we're working with them to help them hopefully get a more durable kind of grass that will continue to support the level of activity it has. Well, it's interesting how people talk about the Smithsonian as the nation's attic, and I suppose in a way the mall is the nation's front yard, mm -hmm. and it gets appropriate yeah, use. I don't use the word nation's attic. Why? <laughs> uh, well, the, an attic, you know, I grew up in the Deep South, and so attics were important. We didn't have basements down there didn't need them, and, uh, but we had attics. And you think of an attic, in, at least in the south, you always stuck your head up in the attic. It was hot. You know, you could see a little bit of light. You saw dust motes floating around. And there were things up there that people had abandoned, probably for good reason. <laughs> You're never going to use them. The Smithsonian is a place that's intellectually active, that takes care of things when it has them in its possession. Uh, we try to guard them against deterioration forever and ever. We try to display them. We try to think of intellectual ways to stimulate the American people and all the visitors from other countries to think about life and its relationships in different ways. So it, I see it as a far distant thing from an attic. It is an intellectually vibrant place. Now, museums have back rooms and basements and attics and stuff where the stuff that's not on display is. Yep. And I've done research behind the scenes in the Smithsonian. <laughs> There's amazing stuff back there. There is. Peter Schwartz came back from traveling with you to some of the back rooms <laughs> in the Smithsonian. There's yep. amazing stuff. Is there a way for, other, for that to be more accessible somehow? Uh, not just digitally, but to, you know, I don't know, do tours or something like that. Because it is such fun to see the stuff on a shelf next to, you know, a yeah. bunch of other things like it, but they're sort of different. And the kind of things you just can't do right. out in the front. Yeah, and when Chris and his folks came back, that was one of the things we did was to give folks uh, that tour. And one of the participants said something very interesting. He said, I grew up in Washington. I've been to the Smithsonian 40 times. I, I, even when I come back from California, I go. And he said, this is the first time I've ever really understood the Smithsonian because I got to do the behind-the-scenes tour. So that was a bit of a revelation to me, thinking, how can we use digital processes to allow people to connect to that experience? Uh, the problem is we can't conduct sort of guided tours of these facilities. They just aren't set up to do that. There's no room. You can take maybe 10 people down at a time 
but you couldn't functionally get there because we have seven million people pouring into natural history as an example. And the objects are sort of out there, you know, and so you aren't supposed to touch these objects, they are preserved and so forth and so forth. That's the difficult thing. We do have collection centers, two of them in Maryland, two giant collection centers where we have many of these things. Again, they're protected there. Uh, it is a marvelous experience to go there. It's just difficult to take people back to these areas and because they just aren't set up to do it. But digitally, we should be able to do these things and digitally and through the web, we can bring our curators out and they can walk people through virtually through these collections. I can do it with contained walkways. I mean, if you were Dutch, you'd be figuring out a way to charge people to you know, walk by the <laughs> folks that are wrapping the flowers and doing all that stuff. And, uh, you know, the, the, in the lumber camps where they have a walkway that goes over oh, the yeah. thing, everybody gets to watch everything. Well, great minds think Isolated like, walkways. Yeah. We have a group, and that's one of the items on their list. Is there a way to do this? Some areas we probably can do it, and we should, because it's thrilling to be able to see these things. Kevin Kelly has a question in several versions of the past several decades. The center of American culture has been the computer and digital stuff. How is the Smithsonian collecting, preserving, presenting intangible digital masterpieces? Well, and uh, I suppose just you know the kind of random stuff. Uh, I mean, some of these questions came in by Twitter. How are you preserving Twitter? <laughs> that's the popular culture section. Okay, uh, that's a very interesting question, and it was asked recently by Vint Cerf, who did invent the internet, uh, what we're doing about it. And the answer is probably not enough. As one of those, someone asked the question earlier about her collections. And are we looking at them in a broad way to make sure we're preserving all aspects? That is one of those issues. Now, we do have a group called the Folklife Group, which is, I find fascinating, uh, that collects music and collects uh, uh, spoken records. And so we have a tremendous number of recordings, and we make a little money on those because you can get them on iTunes, from all the R and Blue uh, work that we've done way back in the 30s, 20s, and 10s, and so forth. So that kind of information we have maintained digitally. We're able to do that digitally. And we're keeping, and we have more and more photographs and things like that from the modern era. But it's a very interesting question. Somebody asked me a question recently about all the digital photographs that are taken. I don't know which, how you choose which digital photographs are the best. Uh, but this it's a growing issue. And then the next question is, if you digitize something today, will you have a device around 15 years from now that will read what you digitize today? And so there are all kinds of interesting questions that are out there for us. Is that something the Smithsonian is taking on or sort of waiting for a solution to appear from somewhere <laughs> and they will adopt it? I think we're waiting for somebody to tell us a little more about that. But it is a major issue for us as we move down the road to digitizing our collections is will we still be able to see them 15 years from now after we digitize them? Do you interact with the National Ar Archive very much? We do. Very closely work with them as well as Library of Congress. The Library of Congress and uh, archives are probably ahead of us in doing some of their digital uh, collections. Yeah, I've worked with them. It's, um, this is going to be sooner rather than later a huge problem, I think. Yep. And I, I don't know who the hell's ahead in this area. I don't think there is anyone, really. I mean, you know, we're the waiting. archive's on it. If anybody knows, let me know. Stanford? Stanford? Keller, I yeah, Mike Keller and, and Stanford working with uh, the Google Books and things like that. Yeah. They're, they're on the case. It, it's, the, the web is becoming a Smithsonian of the sky in some respect. Mm -hmm. And as long as it doesn't perish into a black hole of dead links or something, 
Um, you know, that's kind of the hope that that itself is self-sustaining. Right. And then that raises the question of what does Smithsonian do with the living web? And I mean, uh, you know, what, well, did, what think, did Vince yeah, Cerf tell you to do about that? To me, that? The, the, one of the things we, we often tend to think too much about digitizing and putting things out in sort of a passive way. To me, the real uh, value is going to be in the social networking side of the web, letting people tell us what they think, letting them get into our collections. We're already learning things about our collections that we don't know that other people know. There's somebody who may have a personal connection to an object we have in our collections that we may have put our experts on, but they couldn't see it. And so having the web as a tool to allow people to share their intelligence with us, the swarm effect, is I think a very powerful concept. That's a good answer. It occurs to me that your 137 billion things made out of atoms that's actually somewhat unique and that it, you're in this interesting relationship that seems to be going on perpetually between things and and, right. and virtuality basically right. and you've got you know close to a monopoly on things <laughs> so uh you don't want to completely punt on digital and virtual and cloud and all that stuff but on the other hand you can sort of say you know go ahead and be as ephemeral and amazing and fast moving as you want we got the stuff mm -hmm. <laughs> Well, th there's another side of this, too, and don't forget the scientific side of the collection. For example, insects. Uh, today, the world is absolutely, totally connected. Today, at any given time, the flowers you put on your table as your flower display may have come yesterday from Kenya. And when they came from Kenya and they came into this country, they carried insects with them. And the question is, were those insects native to this country? Are they native? Are they going to be invasive species? That's a big issue. And so uh, having a digital database and having collections so that when these objects arrive in the United States and you have only a small amount of time to say yes or no, you can't keep cut flowers sitting there for you know, three days while you're making up your mind. Uh, having the digital database quickly there, and that's not there yet, but we're getting there with the Department of Agriculture, to help people who are making those decisions quickly make that decision so that it becomes a utilitarian type of tool but you have to digitize it in order to be able to get the information back quickly because of the connectivity in the world today. Well, here's a case of that. When you're doing your criminal investigation of those geese that uh, flagrantly <laughs> flew into the engines of the airplane over New York, how did you guys find out that they were migratory? What's the actual process of doing that? Okay. Um, okay, and, and I'm going to tell you what our folks told me, okay? Uh, but the, the first was the feathers. Uh, and, you know, I've, I've gone down to the... We have a feather identification lab. And the scientist who runs it's name aptly named Carla Dove. And Carla is a very, very brilliant scientist, and she has a group of people who work with her. Uh, she, they receive 4,500 bird strike cases a year that are sent to them for identification. Bird strikes Be of planes? Or, bird strikes or? of planes. Wow. Bird strikes of planes. Um, some of those related to the military, but many of them related to civilian airports. It's important for airports to know, do we have birds who are you know, using our place as an environment to grow their young. And sadly enough, you've got to shoo them off because you don't want them around airplanes. I don't want to really make you nervous about flying, but the fact is that... 4,500 strikes, why should we worry? Uh, yeah, <laughs> quite a few. So, uh, if, if, and, you know, you go down to this lab, and they show you, they pull out the stuff from the Hudson River Miracle Plane, and it's feathers. Yeah, there were some feathers left over from the impact and there was also, I would personally call it, non-scientifically, goo on some engine, engine parts. 
And it was some combination of the feathers. They can, particularly the bottom part of feathers, I'm told by our feather experts, are very important to identifying bird species. Then they line them up against all our collections. That's very important. And then they do DNA studies and isotope studies. And they can actually see what the birds have been eating. And it's from that bit of information you determine that these birds were not eating Coney Island hot dogs. Uh, they had, in fact, been feeding on certain kind of food that are found in, in, is found in a certain place in Canada before they migrated. So these were migratory geese. Uh, they had migrated to New York City as a place of warmth in the winter. And the presumption is that at that particular time of day, it was about the time when geese get up and go look for food. And these birds, even though they were in New York City, they were there temporarily. And they had lifted off as a flock to go look for uh, food locally. They were about 2,900 feet when they hit the plane. And you can get into all the details about how plane engines are designed for bird impact. Uh, they are designed for certain sizes of birds. Uh, this, we had three of them, and they were all about eight pounders. And they all hit the engines about the same time. Mm -hmm. And it turned out couldn't take it. And that's now going back to the Boeing and Airbus. They're all redesigning their engines as a result of that. Goose catchers in front or what? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, one wonders how do you design for an eight-pound bird strike? <laughs> Three of them. Now, one of the things I encountered, um, and we're winding up here, but uh, the, the trends of science, the um, Encyclopedia of Life and barcoding of life are quite different than the way uh, taxonomy used to be done. Taxonomy used to be done by specialists. You have some in the Smithsonian who would you know, find a certain twig of the tree of life and then own it. Right. And if you found a particular genus of beetle, you thought you had a new species, you had to send your beetle to that bloke, wherever right. he or she was, and months later, if you were lucky, word would come back, sorry, it's been discovered years right. ago, you wasted your time. And uh, there was, it was, a, it was a slow, mm -hmm. tight, anal process. Right. Um, I'm a biologist, so I you know, <laughs> like it, but it was weird. And then along came uh, GenBank and the sharing of half-baked data, and instead of getting power for sequestering stuff, right. you started getting power in science from sharing stuff. Right. Even sharing stuff that wasn't really ready for prime time, because right. it would become ready for prime time out there right. on the web. Is Smithsonian in the thick of that, or trailing along behind, or what no, would you... No, we're very actively involved in the Barcode of Life project, and... So everybody understands that this is the idea is to try to find a snippet of your genetic material that they can use to identify a particular species. And as Stuart said, in the past when you had a species and, for example, and it potentially invasive species, to find out if this was a new species or not, it took months. And the idea is to have this DNA information and digitized information so that when you have a species that you're believe may be invasive or new, that you can quickly, in a matter of, of minutes, literally, if you get on the database, identify new species. And this is very important because we're losing species all the time, and we're discovering new species. And when I said that there were 1.8 million anticipated pages of the, of the Encyclopedia of Life web pages, uh, we have no idea if that's the real number. I'm told by some of our entomologists it could be 30 million species on Earth. We just don't know about them yet. Or 100 million. Yeah, That's 100. not counting the microbes. Huge number. Mm -hmm. But having a way to quickly identify a species is very important to know if you have a new species and to be able to do it quickly for any number of scientific as well as practical reasons to understand that. 
So here's the impression I get. Um, your stuff would drive to the Smithsonian toward being sort of stodgy and protective and, you know, we got the stuff, leave us alone. And yet your <laughs> science is always scrabbling out there toward a multiplicity of horizons, using a multiplicity of new instrumentalities and mechanisms and sharednesses and all the rest of that to keep up with lead science. By virtue of all that happening in one institution, you can't get stodgy. Is that your view? Well, I would suggest that's true to a certain point, but it's very easy for an institution like the Smithsonian because we are so comprehensive in many ways, so diverse, is to stay within our own orbit. And it's important for us not to do that. We can't afford to do everything. It's impossible for us to do it. We know that. Uh, other institutions know that. We don't have all the smart people. Other institutions have smart people. Other people have collections. We don't have, and as I mentioned and we discussed earlier, this business about restoration of artworks and fossils around the world is that you're going to have to share these collections in the future. You can't have them. You're going to have to share them in the future. And so collaboration and sharing of information will be far more important in the future than it's been in the past. We're starting to sign MOUs with universities. We already work with a lot of universities. We work with Stanford. Um, memorandums of understanding uh, with universities where we can see they can do things that can complement what we can do and vice versa. We, uh, the Smithsonian's a little bit of an unusual outfit. These collections are the kinds of things universities have a hard time maintaining today. Many universities are divesting themselves of collections because of financial pressures. And remember, it's not just holding the objects. You've got to preserve them. Just park downriver those guys and collect yep. the stuff as it comes pouring out of right. the university. And <laughs> but part of our job will be all of these objects really should be available to any other scientists who want to use them. They are really today, but they will be more so in the future. Digitally will help, but we have visiting scientists all over the world, all the time. And if you take an example of what we do down at Bear, Colorado Island, we have upwards of a thousand visiting scientists and students a year who take advantage of the work we've done. We're sort of like a national lab in that way. We've created this spot where we have the baselines, we have the data, the observations over 100 years, and scientists from all over the world, students, in fact, people can visit Barrow, Colorado Island mm -hmm. for a small price and see this remarkable place that's great. and see the work that's going on there. And uh, it's being technologically, uh, you know, technologically driven today with little micro collars they put on animals and so forth and cameras that we can see things we've never been able to see before. It's really an eye-opener when you see it. But sharing with other scientists, with other individuals is important and will become more important. That sounds like the future. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining LongNow as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.